Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. As we walk through Holy Week, Bishop offers his reflections on John's account of the Passion. Find out what makes it different from the other Gospels as we prepare for Good Friday. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good Bishop as we kind of wrap up our Lenten journey. We want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Bob Doling. Thank you for your support of Redeemer Radio and of Truth and Charity. We appreciate it. Bishop, to start off this episode, have you ever ridden on a donkey? Yes. Yeah? In Haiti. Okay. Yep. I went up a steep hill on a donkey. Just as transportation? Yes, as transportation. Not like just for a fun ride? Oh, no, no. This was Uh really, yeah. And going down too, yeah. I lived in Honduras for a year and the parish priest, he's got, you know, 20 different little mission they call them in the aldeas, yeah. churches. And he rode a donkey on, on Palm Sunday from the main church to one up in the mountains. Oh, and really? Everybody just kind of followed along and, uh, and, then, like and then celebrated the Palm Sunday up there at that church. That's great. I forgot that you were there. What were you doing? Yeah, I, I just think the more often we have priests riding around on donkeys, the better. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I was doing mission work with the uh, Franciscan Friars of the Renewal. Oh, great. Kind of discerning with them. And oh, yeah, wow. just kind of needed to figure out my life. And so it took a year to so be open to God's So you became fluent in Spanish? Or Ooh, were boy. you already when you got there? I studied German in high school. So that oh, didn't help me out. just like I did. Yeah. <laughs> and then we never used it. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out uh, a lot of German people speak English. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we are in the middle of Holy Week here, and one of the things that people that attend Mass frequently during Holy Week, from starting with Palm Sunday and going through Good Friday, now I can't remember what the readings are for the Easter Vigil. Do we get the Passion at the Easter Vigil? No, no. Okay. The Passion is on Good Friday. Easter Vigil, there are seven Old Testament readings, and the Gospel is of the Resurrection. Okay, yeah. appropriate. Someone like myself might wonder, why do we keep repeating these long passion narratives each day? Would, would it be better if we just took a part of it for Palm Sunday and a part on Good Friday or whatever and focused on that more rather than kind of repeating this entire passion from different Gospels? You'd have to ask someone else. That's just the way the, <laughs> the liturgy is. I mean, I I do think that the long reading of the Passion, you know, takes place on Palm Sunday, mm-hmm. and the Gospel of the entrance, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, is read at the very beginning of Mass, either in the back of the church or outside, mm-hmm. and then there's the procession with the palms. So, really, the Gospel of Palm Sunday is what begins the Mass, but then. The gospel during the Mass is of the Passion. And since we're on a three-year cycle of Sunday readings, as you know, one year we'll have the gospel according to Matthew, the next year according to Mark, the next year according to Luke, and then we go back to Matthew, Mm -hmm. Mark, Luke. It's a three-year cycle. So this past Sunday, Palm Sunday, since we're in year C, we heard the Passion according to St. Luke. 
Then on Good Friday, we always hear every year the Passion according to St. John. That doesn't change. Now, as far as that question about there's so much there, why don't we split it up? I can understand that because as a preacher, there's so much there to preach about. And both on Palm Sunday and on Good Friday, every year I try to think, okay, I can't talk about the whole passion. There's so much. But I'll think of one particular theme or maybe a part or two to decide to preach on. Mm -hmm. You know, I think... Sometimes people can miss out because we don't divide it a lot on reflecting enough on the passion. So I always encourage people to, on their own, Mm -hmm. especially during the latter part of Lent, even during Holy Week, to split it up themselves in their prayer. Yeah. And so that they can meditate a little bit more on it. So I do understand that. There are some parts of it that might appear in the lectionary during the year for special occasions, for example, where we just might hear the part about Jesus entrusting Mary to John Mm -hmm. or in John to Mary that appears in some feasts, I think Our Lady of Sorrows, for example. But generally speaking, a lot of it we never hear in the lectionary except when the whole passion is proclaimed. Hmm. Yeah, I just encourage everyone today This Holy Week is really to meditate on the Passion. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the Passion according to John. We just heard, as I said, on Palm Sunday, according to Luke. But every year we listen to the Passion according to John. And I think I've said on this show before, you know, I have a lot of devotion to St. John the Apostle, my confirmation name. But one of the reasons is I find his writings both the gospel and his three letters and the book of Revelation. I mean, five books of the New Testament come from St. John. So rich and so deep. The theology is really incredible in John's gospel. So I love delving into into this gospel. So maybe we could talk a little bit about certain things that are specific themes of St. John's account of the Passion. Sure. I don't even have a clue as to what would be different about his account. I mean, like you said, I, I would hear on Sunday, it seems like the, I'm hearing the exact same thing on on Good Friday as I heard on Palm Sunday. I never really thought about yeah. what's different about it. Well, there's a lot in common, but then there are different emphases. And there's some things that are recounted in John that we don't find in the other three Gospels. There's also things, for example, in Luke or in Matthew that we don't find in the others. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like any of us, if we're writing about an event, something might strike us more or we might get into more depth mm-hmm. depending on what we're most interested in. And, and some of that also potentially be the audience that they were talking to. They also, kind of adjust yeah, details or. Yeah. And when you look at the four gospels, I mean, the cross is the culmination of Jesus's ministry. So that's common. I mean, we get to this climax. And, you know, when you read the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even the letters of St. Paul, we see the importance of the cross. And there's kind of a lot of emphasis on, you know, Jesus's execution, that this was necessary before the resurrection. Whereas in St. John, there's a little different perspective 
because he sees the cross as the throne of Christ's glory. Hmm. The second part of John's gospel is called the book of glory. So his perspective is he sees the triumph of the cross, that Jesus's death is the beginning of his triumph, the first stage of his ascension to the Father, the moment of his glorification as the Son of God. Remember earlier in John's gospel, and only in John's gospel, he speaks about the Son of Man being lifted up. And I think this is really key for when we meditate on John's gospel. There, as I said, this second part of the gospel is the book of glory, and it deals with the death and the resurrection and the glorification of Christ. So John sees the glorious of exaltation of Jesus on the cross, which is really pretty profound. So from the very beginning of John's gospel, there's reference to the hour of Jesus, Jesus's hour. Remember in the very second chapter, he tells Mary at the wedding feast of Cana that his hour had not yet come. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the hour of his glorification. That's what he's talking about, his passion, death, and resurrection, and ascension. So John sees the passion and death is also glorious. Mm -hmm. He's accomplishing his work of salvation. He's revealing the love of the Father. So this is one of the prominent themes in the passion of John, according to John, is the kingship of Jesus. This is much more prominent in John's gospel than in the other three gospels, that Jesus is the sovereign Lord. He is the king. When you read John's passion account, Jesus, Jesus. Is, is in control mm. of the whole situation. He's in control of the events. He allows them to happen. He freely goes to the cross. Remember earlier in chapter 10 of his gospel, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, right. for I, but I lay it down on my own. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. John really emphasizes this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't. John's emphasizing that Jesus freely goes to the cross. He's in charge. He offers his life as a gift of love. And he lays down his life in obedience to the Father, revealing the depths of the Father's infinite love and mercy towards sinners. So spiritually, I find this really profound when I meditate using John's gospel. You know, on the surface, yeah, Jesus' death seems like defeat, seems like humiliation. But in the eyes of John, it's victory, it's triumph, not just at the moment of the resurrection, but even on the moment on the cross where God overcomes sin and death. So when we hear the Gospel of John on, on Good Friday, it begins with Jesus going to his arrest. He goes to across the Kidron Valley with his disciples to a garden. Now notice John doesn't even name the garden. Now we know it's the Garden of Gethsemane because we know that from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh -huh. I mean, we could go through this whole thing and we'll be here for a few hours, <laughs> but there's so many details that you can see. But let's just take this event in the garden, mm -hmm. and you can just see how John is different 
than the Synoptic Gospels. Judas is there. It says in John's Gospel that Jesus often met with the disciples in this garden. And the Gospel says, So Judas got a band of soldiers and guards from the chief priests and the Pharisees and went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, by the way, the other Gospels don't tell us that. Uh Continue. Jesus, knowing everything that was going to happen to him, again, Mm -hmm. this is John's emphasis. Jesus is in control here. He knows what's going to happen. Jesus went out and said to them, whom are you looking for? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. Mm. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. I am, the divine title. Remember at the burning bush? I am who am. Here we see Jesus' divinity. So again, John is emphasizing the lordship of Jesus. He's in charge. He's the king. He's divine. When they tell him they're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, he, he just doesn't say, well, that's me. Uh-huh. He says, ego e me. I am. And Judas, again, was with this group and with the soldiers and the guards who came from the Pharisees and the chief priests. What happened when Jesus said to them, I am? John tells us, when he said to them, I am, they turned away and fell to the ground. Think about that. He had just identified him with a divine name. No wonder they fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom are you looking for? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill what he had said. I have not lost any of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. By the way, the other Gospels don't tell us the slave's name. Right. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its scabbard. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father gave me? Now, let's think about this. Only John mentions that this group that came to arrest him were carrying lanterns and torches. Think about this. This is deeply symbolic. Jesus is arrested at night. Hmm. The hour of Jesus' passion is the great showdown where God confronts and conquers Satan, the ruler of this world, and the power of sin and evil. Already at the Last Supper, Jesus said that the ruler of the world, the devil, is coming. And now he arrives in the person of Judas, leading symbolically sinful humanity against the divine word, the Son of God, through whom the world was made. This arresting group are not following the light of the world. They're walking in spiritual darkness, so they're carrying other sources of light, lanterns and torches. Again, God the Father has put everything into Jesus' power, so he has complete control over the events of his passion. And Jesus is explaining his 
divine sovereignty by confronting them, these soldiers as that who wanted to arrest him. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and he went out to confront them. Mm. Whom are you looking for? Jesus took the initiative here. Whom are you right. looking for? And they say Jesus and Nazarene, and he uses the divine name. I am. Three times he says that to them. I am. He's affirming his identity as God, as the Lord. And when there's a manifestation of God in the Bible, usually what happens? People prostrate. Well, that's what happened here. It says they turned away and fell to the ground after Jesus said this. Now, Jesus says, gave orders to them, if you're looking for me, let these men go. So he wanted the other disciples, you know, not to get arrested. So in the other gospels, the synoptics, Matthew and Mark in particular, they report that the disciples abandoned Jesus, that they were fearful, they panicked, they left. Here, Jesus is saying, let them go. John emphasizes that they avoid capture because Jesus has decreed it. That's why they avoid and he wanted to protect them. Of course, Simon takes forceful action. Peter, he wants to prevent Jesus being arrested, so he cuts off the ear of the high priest's slave, and Jesus orders him to sheathe his sword and not stop him being, from being arrested. And how did Jesus explain this? He gives a rhetorical question. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father gave me? Now, this is very different from what the other three Gospels record about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. When we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, Jesus is saying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Mm, right. You don't find that in John. In John, Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In other words, this is what the Father has willed for him. And he himself wills it to do the work that his father had given him to do, the work of salvation, which is to lay down his life. And he freely does it in obedience to the father. This is what John is emphasizing. And not even Peter can hinder him from doing this. Jesus won't even let him. So he's establishing his kingly sovereignty. He allows himself to be arrested. And really, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish guards, they do arrest him, they seize him, they bound him, and they bring him to the high priest, the former high priest, Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the, the current high priest. So I think it's interesting. I mean, that's just one part of the gospel. Yeah. But just to give you an idea, I think, of how John interprets and reflects on the same event in the Garden of Gethsemane, right. but with his particular emphases. Well, I want to hear more about this, and this is helping me as well to reflect as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter, so hopefully this is helpful for listeners as well. You can text any questions that you might have for Bishop to the Holy Cross College text line at 260 436 9598 and we'll continue to talk about the passion coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? 
while banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives with products, services, and education. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it back to our members. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here talking about the passion and Bishop was comparing Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account with the Gospel of John. And one of the things that you mentioned was that he's in control. Jesus is in control the whole time, that he's offering himself freely. How do we balance, and this might sound irreverent or crass, but how do we balance between it being almost a, a suicide if he's volunteering to to die versus the other extreme being he had no choice in it and he was forced, he was this victim. How do we balance that and explain that? Yeah, it's a good question. I always think, I mean, he's freely offering his life, but he's not killing himself. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, he is accepting death, but he is not the agent. He's not the one doing the killing. So uh-huh. it's a matter of acceptance, not of perpetration of an evil mm-hmm. upon himself. I hope that helps. Yeah. yeah. There's a, probably a lot of Old Testament sacrifice things right. that we could get into as yeah. well. But. Well, the suffering servant, I mean, that's a whole, there's so much we could talk about on this, Kyle, because yeah. the prophecies of the suffering servant in Isaiah mm-hmm. and to see how those prophecies are viewed and seen as fulfilled by John, but also by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and how they'll take different parts of those suffering serpents' prophecies and emphasize different parts of it. Very interesting. And remember, he says, like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. You know, we read in the suffering servant psalm. So that's very clear in John, because John emphasizes Jesus as the Lamb of God. So yeah. you were talking about the the cup it is referenced in Garden of Gethsemane, like let this cup pass versus like accepting the cup. That's symbolism as well, right? The cup. It is the cup of suffering. If you look at uh, scriptures, you'll see even in the Old Testament, this biblical image. For example, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 16, it says, Lord, my allotted portion and my cup, you have made my destiny secure. In many cases, God fills the cup with his wrath, the punishment that sinners incur. So Jesus' uh, words about the cup, you know, in the Synoptic Gospels, you know, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Well, here in John's Gospel, it's that which the Father has willed for him and which Jesus himself wills Mm -hmm. to lay down his life and take it up again. So yeah, the cup is really a biblical image. So when Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father gave me, again, this is a biblical image for what God has decreed for the life of an individual. Like, this is your cup. This is, or for a group for that matter. Well, I feel like this could be a whole year's worth of of Uh, (laughs) episodes if we did the whole passion like this. Any other 
any other highlights or things? Well, again, that prayer that's so powerful in the synoptic gospels of Jesus in the garden isn't there in John. Hmm. You know, we don't have father take this cup from me. We don't have Jesus sweating blood and tears and Uh all that. We have more of this Jesus in, in control, Jesus in charge. And there's other things. The official session of the Sanhedrin, I'm just looking further on into the passion story, which is pretty important in the synoptic gospels. That's not even here in John's gospel. There's no mention in John's gospel of Simon of Cyrene helping Jesus carry the cross. Hmm. Again, you can understand why. John is emphasizing, like, Jesus is here in charge. He doesn't really need help. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so he doesn't have Simon of Cyrene there. We don't find the sympathy of the women of Jerusalem there in John's gospel along the way of the cross. Mm. We don't have those insults from the soldiers. But there are some scenes in John's gospel that we don't find in the synoptics, like this session before Annas, the former high priest. That's not in the other gospels. Or the long dialogues with Pontius Pilate, which are very prominent. We have in John's gospel Jesus' words from the cross to his mother, and to the Apostle John, the beloved disciple. We don't find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke Jesus's side being pierced after he died and the blood and water flowing forth. That's only in John. So these are kind of different details. Obviously, there are a lot of things that are in common between the two. Definitely, I find John's account to be more emotional, more solemn in a sense, And in all four Gospels, we see this as Jesus' passion as the fulfillment of Scripture. But there are some Scripture passages referred to in John's account of the passion that only John refers to from the Old Testament. For example, he says in John's Gospel from the cross, I thirst. Mm -hmm. And that's a reference back to Psalm uh, 69. But That's not in the others. Also, in John's gospel, it says, not a bone of him shall be broken. Well, that goes back to the books of Exodus and Numbers and Psalm 34. Another thing in John's gospel, it says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. That comes right from the prophet Zechariah. So it's interesting how All of the evangelists see what's happening as a fulfillment of Scripture, but they see different things, which is just normal, I think. We see features of the suffering servant, as I just mentioned earlier, of Isaiah. Especially when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts, they're relating or they're telling us about the terrible suffering and the humiliation of Jesus. Definitely we see that connection with the description of the suffering servant in Isaiah. But John doesn't really emphasize that a whole lot. He doesn't emphasize so much as Jesus as a victim. John's emphasizing his majesty, Mm -hmm. even at this point. When he's taken prisoner and he's accused before Annas in John's gospel, Jesus is struck and he's crowned with thorns interrogated by Pilate, nailed to the cross. In all of this, he's king. His royalty comes out. It's not just these circumstances that happen to him. I mean, he calmly 
accepts this. There's a dignity. He understands and controls what is happening. When it's all over, he says, it is finished. Mm -hmm. It is consummated. Only John has Jesus saying that. All has been fulfilled. You know, like, okay, he's done his father's will. He's done, he's fulfilled it. Even going back to the garden, you know, I am. You know, I am he, the divine name. And they fall down to the ground. You know, so this majesty of Jesus, even in his trial before Pilate, we can get into that in a little bit, or the title that's placed on the cross proclaiming the cause of his condemnation. This is the king of the Jews. The title placed there, the king reigning from the cross. That's his throne. This is the place of his enthronement, the place of his exaltation. Next comes the interrogation before Annas. And while that's going on, we have Peter denying Christ. He's out in the courtyard. Peter is introduced by the other disciple, probably John himself, the beloved disciple, who's known to the high priest and is interrogated. And Peter is interrogated by the woman about whether he's a disciple of Jesus and Jesus had in the garden said, I am here. Peter saying, I am not. He's not a disciple of Jesus. He really says no. And of course, the cock crows when he denies Jesus a second time. We're going to see later after the resurrection how Peter's triple denial will be changed at the shore of the lake. When risen Jesus is there, he declares his love for Jesus three times. Now, when the interrogators were questioning Jesus about his teaching, trying to learn if he's a false prophet, Jesus doesn't deny anything. He points out that he has said nothing in secret. So he's in control. I've said nothing in secret. Mm-hmm. You, you know, He said that to Annas, and then he got struck. I mean, that was pretty bold. Yeah. Jesus then asks, why? Why did you do this to me? And they don't say anything. So he has the last word. Okay, Jesus has the last word. Yeah. Then he's brought before Pilate. It's like a judicial process. This is much more dramatic than in the other Gospels. And it's, it takes place both inside and outside of the Praetorium, which is where Pilate lived. Actually, there's seven different going inside and outside through all of this. The Synoptic Gospels don't go into all this detail of the dialogue between Jesus and Pilate and all that's going on there. But the whole thing, Jesus is in the center. Okay, he's the king. And this is what the trial focuses on, Jesus' kingship. You know, what does Pilate ask him? Are you the king of the Jews? He says to the people, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He says to them, shall I crucify your king? Then Jesus is enthroned in a mocking way, hail king of the Jews, they say. Pilate presents him when he's all scourged and everything and says, behold the man, ecce homo. Of course, through all of this, it's clear that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. He even says that. The Jewish authorities, they seek his death because they say he claimed to be the son of God. Pilate on the other hand, refers to Jesus's kingship, that that's the reason. Of course, Jesus at the trial, according to John, explaining that 
his kingship is really the reign of truth. And he says the essence of his kingdom lies in giving witness to the truth, giving priority to God, God's will over any other powers or interests of the world. And there he is. Jesus is there in a state of humiliation. Pilate says, Ece homo, behold the man. So it's a very solemn moment. And then Jesus goes forth and carries the cross. Again, no Simon of Cyrene to help him. He's doing this voluntarily. St. Thomas Aquinas, when he would, wrote about this, he said the synoptic gospels have Jesus carrying the cross like a convict, carrying his instrument of torment. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's like the convict. But in John's gospel, according to Thomas Aquinas, Jesus isn't carrying the cross like a criminal convict. He's carrying the cross as a king carries his scepter. Mm. I think that's true. And then, of course, Pilate has proclaimed in three languages, this is the king of the Jews. Why three languages? His lordship is over the whole world. Mm. The universal kingship of Christ, not just the Jews. It's in three languages. He's king of the universe. The soldiers divide up his clothing. Again, that's fulfillment of scripture. The tunic is seamless. That's an interesting detail in John's gospel, that they don't tear it, symbolizes the unity of the church. Mm. And that's what Jesus had prayed for in his priestly prayer, that all may be one. The presence of his mother there, the presence of the beloved disciple, St. John, the blood and water that flowed from Christ's side, recalling the wedding feast at Cana. Jesus is inaugurating a new community of disciples and giving them a mother, Mm -hmm. giving them his mother to be their mother. The idea when he says, I thirst, he's thirsting to do the Father's will to the end. He desires to save us all. Remember, he told the Samaritan woman at the well that he was thirsty, but then gave her the living water. And then at the end, he says, it is finished. It is consummated. It is fulfilled. The work of salvation has been accomplished. And then he gave up his spirit. This suggests his sending of the Holy Spirit, that he, whom he promised during his, his public life. And then we have the water and blood flowing from his side. Many reference in this earlier in the gospel. His open side symbolizes the church that was born and the believers who are incorporated into his church by baptism and the Eucharist. His bones were not broken, just like the Passover lamb, whose bones were not broken. He pours out his blood like a lamb and eternal life is the result for all of us. So this is the culmination. He's elevated above the earth to return to his father. So his crucifixion is his being lifted up, his glorification. That's why he came down from heaven in order to be raised, to be lifted up. And then of course, in the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And then he's buried. There's no mention of women, by the way, at at his burial, like in the other gospels. Here we have just two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph had been a really a secret disciple, hidden disciple, and now he, he no longer hides. Also, Nicodemus before had come at night to see Jesus. Now he comes in daylight. 
they bring all these aromatic spices to prepare his body like they would for a burial of a king. Hmm. So I know this was a lot more could be said, but I'd say in John, really, you can't separate Jesus's death from his resurrection because John sees Jesus's exaltation beginning with his death. Mm-hmm. I think that's given me a whole different perspective of of looking at this because in the solemnity of it and of the just being kind of a sad moment to see it as a victorious moment at the same time. Like mm-hmm. I think that's going to give me a different perspective this Good Friday. So thank you for yeah, sharing that. You're welcome. And there's much more that can be said, Kyle. I recommend just reading it slowly and if you have a good commentary, but even without a commentary, just as you meditate, for example, on the dialogue between Pilate and Jesus, I mean, you just see Jesus in his dignity and, mm. and Pilate saying things like, behold the man. It's just John's perspective is, of course, it's a perspective of faith. I mean, it's the same event being described by all four evangelists. But I'd say that John, because he's more of a mystic, and he lived many years after this, so he had pondered it. And he really, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, wrote this, his own account of the Passion, which gets to this deeper level. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to take away from the other three Gospels, uh. because if we wanted to, I could talk about themes that were highlighted this past Sunday in Luke's gospel that are also beautiful and profound, especially Jesus's mercy through all of this. Hmm. For example, his forgiving the good thief. We don't read about that in any of the other three gospels. So they each have, you know, emphasize, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit again, different aspects of what happened at the Passion. All right. Well, I know my homework is going to be to read through that and meditate on it, and hopefully others do as well. Do you have any Easter plans this year? Well, I'll have Easter Vigil at St. Matthew's Cathedral in South Bend, and then Easter Sunday Mass at St. Pius X in Granger. Mm Mm-hmm. But what's really nice is some of my family will be visiting. Okay. They'll be arriving on Good Friday, so they'll be going with me between, because Good Friday I'll be in at the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception uh-huh. in Fort Wayne. So as usual during Holy Week, I bounce back between Fort Wayne and South Bend. Yeah. But it'll be nice to have a family here. All right, well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.